0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When Howard Carter first stared into the gloom of Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922, his companions asked whether he could see anything by the thin flicker of candlelight. Yes, Carter replied. Wonderful things. Carter's comment has since gone down in history. But what exactly were those things that he could see? And why were they so wonderful? I'm Ellie Cawthorne. And in this new History Extra podcast series on Tutankhamun, we're marking the centenary of the discovery of the pharaoh's tomb by exploring his life, death, and legacy. We'll travel back to the ancient empire the boy king ruled over and investigate what his dazzling treasures and mummified remains can tell us about ruling and dying in ancient Egypt. In this episode, we're heading underground to explore the tomb of Tutankhamun and take a look at just a few of over 5,000 artefacts that were found within it. From golden thrones and opulent jewellery, to toy chests, royal loincloths and ancient buffet items. To act as our guide around this subterranean treasure chest, I'm welcoming back an expert that you've already heard from in this series, Professor Toby Wilkinson. Toby's new book, Tutankhamun's Trumpet, takes a fresh look at what the tomb's contents can tell us about ancient Egypt. So I thought there'd be no better person to introduce us to some of these extraordinary artefacts. Over to Toby.
1: Well, the objects buried with Tutankhamun are both a time capsule of a particular time in ancient Egyptian history, but they're also a window into the wider world of ancient Egyptian civilization. Um, So they reflect, of course, the life and times of Tutankhamun, but also because they draw on centuries, indeed millennia, of custom and tradition, they offer us a way into understanding the whole phenomenon of ancient Egypt, really. It's history, it's geography, it's religion, um, and indeed it's legacy.
0: So if we were a couple of ancient Egyptian officials planning a royal tomb... What would be the main considerations when we're deciding what to include?
1: Well, the first thing to remember is that Tutankhamun's tomb is, is the only example we, we've yet discovered of a, of a more or less intact royal tomb. So it's very difficult to compare it with what other pharaohs might have been buried with. What we do know is that Tutankhamun was buried in a hurry and things were essentially kind of cobbled together for his tomb. So he may not have had the full range of objects that would normally have been planned for a a royal burial. But with Tutankhamun, who died unexpectedly, his tomb wasn't even ready, so the tomb he ended up being buried in uh, was not really a royal tomb by design. Um, We know from the way that the objects were put in the tomb and indeed the way that they were sourced in many cases, that it was a bit of a rush job.
0: But it wasn't entirely a hasty botch job. There were certain objects that were key to helping any pharaoh enjoy a smooth transition to the afterlife.
1: The underpinning philosophy of all grave goods is that they're there to serve the pharaoh in the afterlife. So there were specific ritual and magical objects which were thought to be necessary for the pharaoh to proceed successfully into the afterlife. There were many objects uh, of what we call daily life to enable the king to continue to enjoy all the sorts of things that he would have enjoyed during his daily life um, in the afterlife. Um, and then there were a series of what we might call more personal objects, things that, were, that had a particular resonance for Tutankhamun himself, which he you know, would have, have wanted to, to, to be with him uh, throughout all eternity. So some broad categories of, of object and within those categories it was really a question of what was available in the royal storeroom, what could be easily procured for the tomb um, in the time available.
0: Before we examine any of these objects in more depth, let's take a moment to explore the tomb that kept them safe for more than 3,000 years. So grab your torch and pop on a pair of sturdy boots, because I asked Toby to take us on a short tour.
1: So Tutankhamun's tomb comprises four separate chambers. So it's accessed via a, a sloping corridor dug into the bedrock of the Valley of the Kings. And that corridor then connects with the, the first chamber, which archaeologists call the antechamber. And it was found absolutely full with with various objects. Just beyond the antechamber in front of us is a side room, which is called the Annex. And then off to the right-hand side of the antechamber, there was a blocked-up doorway. And that blocked-up doorway led to the the burial chamber, where the king himself was buried in his coffins and, and his sarcophagus, surrounded by golden shrines. And then the fourth chamber, off to the side of the burial chamber, uh, was called the treasury, and that was where many of the, the most valuable objects were stored. So really at the heart of the tomb, if you like.
0: Oh, and I forgot to mention, watch where you're going, because there's not much room in here.
1: It's a very small tomb, and as I said, it wasn't designed as a royal tomb. Tutankhamun had begun excavating a proper royal tomb in another part of the Valley of the Kings, but it was left unfinished at his death. Um, And so ancient Egyptian custom dictated that within 70 days, a pharaoh had to be embalmed uh, and buried. And there was no way that the tomb originally designed for Tutankhamun was going to be finished in 70 days. So they had to press into service What was presumably um, designed for uh, a member of the administration but a non-royal person just happened to be a a small tomb available and that was rapidly converted into a royal tomb. But the result is that it's actually very small and so this huge um, collection of objects that a, a pharaoh had to be buried with, had to be, you know, literally thrown in, um, piled high like a sort of cupboard under the stairs in order to fit it all in what was a very small set of chambers.
0: Were there any kind of security measures in place in the tomb? I'm hesitant to use the phrase booby traps, but essentially that's what I mean.
1: Well, there were security measures. So the uh, entrance to the first chamber, the antechamber, was blocked up and sealed with plaster and the plaster was stamped with the seal of the ancient Egyptian royal necropolis to ensure that nobody broke in but of course that didn't work and thieves did break in and it had to be resealed. There was another blocked doorway between the antechamber and the burial chamber and the burial chamber of course was the, the sort of holy of holies of the tomb. It was where the king's body lay and so really important to safeguard it. So if thieves managed to penetrate the antechamber, they still had to get through a blocked wall into the burial chamber. And then each of the shrines which surrounded the king's sarcophagus was closed with a bolt um, or with a a twist of rope, and that was also sealed. So the Egyptians were were great believers in in sealing things with a wax seal um, as as an added security measure. Um, So there were multiple layers of security, and then... If the thieves broke through uh, into the burial chamber, they had to get through four golden shrines, a stone sarcophagus and three nested coffins before they reached the body of the pharaoh, which none of them succeeded in doing uh, in ancient times. So to that extent, the security measures worked.
0: If you do manage to make it past the security measures, take a look around and you'll see murals on the walls. Although, i admit, the decoration isn't quite as grand as you might be hoping.
1: A standard royal tomb at this time would have been very extensively decorated. Um, Most of the chambers and the corridors uh, would have had uh, carved and painted decoration, generally speaking, reflecting beliefs about the afterlife. So very elaborate religious scenes showing the pharaoh moving from this world into the next world, navigating all of the obstacles, and eventually being welcomed into the realm of the god of the dead, Osiris. Now, Tutankhamun's tomb has very little wall space and there wasn't very much time to to decorate it. So, in fact, only one of those four chambers, the burial chamber, has any painted decoration in it at all. Um, And it's very abbreviated. It's just essentially the must-have elements um, for a, a royal tomb. So there is a scene from the sun god's passage through the underworld, the idea being that that would bring life and light to the souls of the dead, there is a scene of Tutankhamun being escorted into the underworld and welcomed by the god of the dead, Osiris. There is very interestingly, and, and unusually for a royal tomb, there is a scene of Tutankhamun's funeral procession. So his coffin uh, being dragged by mourners, um, which is not normally something we'd find in a royal tomb. And then, in a sense, the most telling of all the scenes in Tutankhamun's tomb is the scene of his heir carrying out the act of burial. Because, according to ancient Egyptian custom, what made you the legitimate pharaoh was not so much whether you were the eldest son of the previous pharaoh, but who carried out the burial. And the act of carrying out the burial of your predecessor made you the next legitimate pharaoh. And because the uh, succession to the throne was highly contested after Tutankhamun's death, it was in the interest of the person who eventually became pharaoh to have himself portrayed in Tutankhamun's tomb, carrying out the burial. So he could say to people, well, look, there I am. I'm the heir. I'm the legitimate next pharaoh and nobody can argue with it. So the decoration tells us rather more than it might in an ordinary royal tomb. It tells us about the particular circumstances of, of the boy king's death.
0: Interesting. So it's, it's almost like a piece of political propaganda in a way.
1: It is indeed a piece of political propaganda. Um, and it's very interesting to see a royal tomb being used for that purpose.
0: Visit Tutankhamun's tomb today and you'll find that most of the grave goods have been cleared out, taken away for safekeeping at museums. But when Howard Carter and his team cracked open the tomb 100 years ago, they were faced with a very different scene. Despite what you might expect, these priceless treasures were not carefully arranged. In fact, many of them were piled up somewhat unceremoniously
1: because it was such a small tomb and a bit of a rush job, objects were sort of piled in uh, rather kind of in a slapdash way rather than being, you know, carefully laid out. But the other point is that Carter found evidence that the tomb had been burgled or an attempted burglary quite early on in its history. And tomb robbers seem to have got into the tomb very shortly after it was sealed, but been disturbed in the act and so they had left material kind of discarded where they'd been rifling through boxes in search of of precious stones and, and metals they'd been obviously apprehended and the authorities were no doubt rather embarrassed that the tomb had been uh, entered so you know so quickly and rather than trying to put everything back carefully, they'd essentially just left it where it was and resealed it and sort of tried to hush it up. So what we find is is a tomb that was both equipped in a hurry, but also then rifled through by robbers and then just left in a state of, of disarray.
0: Hopefully, that gives you a picture of the tomb as it was when Carter found it. Not immediately quite as glamorous or glittering as you might have anticipated. And you'll see this if you look up the photos that were taken of the tomb back in the 1920s, and I really recommend doing so. If you are going to be harsh, it does look a bit like the scene of an attic clear-out or an overstuffed antique shop. But when Carter and his team started to work through these musty piles of objects, they began to make some spectacular discoveries. So Carter and his team, they were immediately drawn to the objects that were glittering and golden and covered in jewels. So what are some of the the scene stealers of Tutankhamun's tomb, the headline acts as it were?
1: Well, the one I suppose that everybody would recognise is the gold funerary mask covering the the face of of the mummified pharaoh. It's become the icon of ancient Egypt, and and it is a thing of spectacular beauty made from uh, solid sheet gold and inlaid with with precious stones and, and with glass. There were other golden objects which really caught the eye straight away. One was the king's throne. Uh, which is the most beautiful piece of furniture inlaid with gold and with silver and with with semi-precious stones, which has an extraordinary scene on the back of it showing the young king Tutankhamun with his queen under the cosmic rays of the sun god. A really spectacular piece. Then there were some great ritual couches which would have been used in the mummification rituals, um, where the king's uh, body would have been laid out and and, and mummified. Those are in the form of huge beds with animal heads, but again, covered with gold leaf, so very striking objects. And then two extraordinary guardian statues with their skin coloured black, but with gold um, trappings, which uh, guarded the entrance from the antechamber to the burial chamber. Um, So some really spectacular objects that immediately uh, Court Carter's eye.
0: We have a golden mask, a golden throne and statues bedecked with golden trappings. Not to mention Tutankhamun's gold jewellery, gold chariot and solid gold funerary sandals. So it's fair to say that the ancient Egyptians were big fans of gold then.
1: Gold was very much um, associated with the gods and and therefore with with the pharaohs. According to ancient Egyptian religion, uh, the gods' bodies were fashioned from gold. Um, So in order to convey the idea that the pharaoh, uh, during his life and after his death, was in the company of the gods, uh, many of the objects associated with him were made from gold. That was the divine material. And gold was found in abundance within the borders of, of Egypt's territories. So it was, uh, uh, it was a, an available material as well as prestige material.
0: Gold may be the star of the show, but it was only one of many precious materials that were found in Tutankhamun's tomb
1: we do find lots of what we would call semi precious stones but for the egyptians they they were precious materials like uh, the red stone carnelian um, dark blue lapis lazuli which had to be brought all the way from afghanistan turquoise and then, very occasionally, the use of precious metals that were not found within Egypt, uh, like silver, which ironically was actually more valuable than gold because it had to be imported from a long way away, and some rare objects made from iron. And let's not forget that Tutankhamun lived in the Bronze Age. Iron was still a, a very innovative material. The Egyptians hadn't really mastered iron working but other civilizations in the ancient world had and so iron was particularly highly prized And there are one or two objects in Tutankhamun's tomb in this incredible new material that nobody really understood.
0: So does that show that the Egyptians were trading and connected with lots of other civilizations then if they were able to bring these um, materials in?
1: Yes. T- uh, Tutankhamun's Egypt was a very internationally minded country. It had trade relations with a very widespread series of, of partners a- a- around the ancient world. So, as I said, it would have imported uh, Lapis lazuli from as-, as far away as Afghanistan. But we know that Egypt enjoyed close trading contacts with Greece, uh, with Anatolia, modern Turkey, with Syria, but also with lands to the west in modern day Libya uh, and with lands to the south in the Sudan and, and indeed further afield. So it was quite an internationally minded culture. And in terms of the king and his burial, um, all the finest objects would have been sourced from, uh, from far and wide.
0: And what are some of the key symbols that we find on these objects, objects that are intended to convey power and majesty? A lot of them have scarab beetles on them. What was the meaning of that?
1: Yes, many of the most striking pieces of jewellery from, from Tutankhamun's tomb um, have scarab beetles. And, and the scarab beetle seems slightly odd to us that you might worship a beetle, but the, the scarab or dung beetle was a very powerful symbol uh, to the ancient Egyptians for a number of reasons. First of all, what it does as a beetle is, is roll a ball of dung in front of it with its legs. And for the Egyptians, this was a metaphor for the sun god pushing the, the, the orb of the sun across the heavens uh, during the day. So they saw the scarab beetle as, as a solar creature, as symbolic of, of, of the sun god. And of course, the scarab beetle is also known for laying its eggs in a ball of dung, which then hatch. And for the Egyptians, this was a, a symbol of, of new life coming out of death and decay, Uh, this miraculous creation of new life from a ball of, of essentially dead matter. And so the scarab becomes a powerful symbol of rebirth. So that combination of being a solar god and a symbol of rebirth, you know, what better for a royal tomb, really? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
0: These sacred creepy crawlies are found on all manner of objects in the tomb. But there's one scarab beetle in particular that deserves its own special shout out.
1: For me, one of the most unusual and telling objects from the whole tomb is uh, an elaborate piece of jewellery found in the treasury. And It has many different symbolisms included within it, but the central piece of this jewel is a scarab beetle, and the body of the scarab beetle is carved not from lapis lazuli, but from green glass. And what is particularly intriguing about this is that it's not man-made glass. It is naturally occurring desert glass, which is only found in one very, very remote part of the Sahara Desert, hundreds and hundreds of miles from the Nile Valley and was created by an ancient meteorite impact, Uh, the the temperature and the pressure of which fused the sand of the desert into glass. And this glass is found scattered over the the desert surface um, in this part of the Sahara. Now, even in modern times, with all of our technology, this site has only been visited a few times by geological expeditions. And yet we know that the ancient Egyptians must have known about it. They must have marvelled at this extraordinary occurrence of glass in the middle of the desert. Uh, Perhaps they even knew something of its extraterrestrial origins. And they took a piece back to fashion into the body of a scarab beetle to place in the tomb of Tutankhamun. So it completely blows apart our sense that the ancient Egyptians were just a people who lived in the Nile Valley. Um, It actually expands our idea of the scope of ancient Egyptian civilization and their knowledge and their mastery of their environment, which was in many cases you know, better than it is today. So it, it is the most remarkable piece and, and it I think it completely challenges our view of, of ancient Egyptian civilization.
0: To carve a piece this rare and special into the shape of a scarab beetle just shows how potent a symbol these little insects were. And beetles aren't the only bits of decoration used to convey a deeper meaning in the tomb.
1: One of the most important is what's called the sacred eye, um, or uh, to use its ancient Egyptian uh, name, the wedjat eye. Um, And we find this on little amulets. We we find it on bracelets that were placed on the king's mummified body. We find it inlaid in decoration on jewellery. And the sacred eye was a symbol of healing uh, and a symbol of of wholeness. And its significance was that when placed in the tomb, it would guarantee that the king's body would remain whole um, and would be healed of any earthly uh, illnesses to enjoy um, an afterlife of, of, of health and vitality.
0: Throughout this series... I've been on the hunt for information about what Tutankhamun was like not just as a pharaoh, a symbolic royal figurehead, but also as a person. And as it turns out, this is something that's much harder to pin down from the source material. So do we have any items in his tomb that might offer up a glimmer of personality?
1: They range enormously from the very mundane, like his loincloths, um, so his underwear, (laughs) um, um, through various tunics that he would have worn, objects that he would have played with as a child. Let's not forget Carmen came to the throne at the age of about nine. um, And, you know, he died while still a teenager. So we have his toy box, for example. Um, We have uh, a little uh, fire drill, which he would have used, you know, all little boys, I think, like starting fires. And Carmen had his own little fire drill. He also had a set of cosmetic equipment. So as he became older, he would have needed to shave. So we have his razors. Uh, we have his toilet equipment. So really quite personal things that that take us into the heart of his life as a, as a boy, not just as a king. And, and then for me, I think one of the most poignant objects buried uh, with him is a lock of his grandmother's hair, and what is very touching is that you imagine royal children then, as now, probably saw not very much of their parents because their parents had royal duties. Um, and Carmen seems to have spent probably as much time as a boy uh, with his grandmother as he did with his parents. And so the fact that he carried around with him and was buried with a lock of his grandmother's hair, I think is really touching. And it sort of strips away all of that panoply of, of royalty and, and takes us sort of face-to-face with Tutankhamun the boy.
0: And the idea behind including this more everyday material, so the loincloths, the toy chest, is that because these objects are intended to go with Tutankhamun for him to use in the afterlife? I think it's a
1: bit of both. I think it's both that he wanted everything around him in the afterlife that he had had during his earthly life so that he can continue to do the things he enjoyed. But I think also there is a little bit of a sense of of capturing Tutankhamun the person, uh, as well as Tutankhamun the king, and by burying him with some things that were really personal to him. It gives that tomb a character, I think, which which identifies the owner individually.
0: I wanted to ask a little bit more about those items of clothing that we have from Tutankhamun, because this is something people are always fascinated about. What can you tell us about them?
1: Well, as well as his underwear and one or two um, tunics, perhaps the most elaborate items of clothing um, are a set of gloves. Now, gloves are actually very difficult things to make. They require a lot of skill. But um, like a lot of high-status ancient Egyptians, um, seems to have had a bit of a thing for gloves – And so there are some very elaborate um, gloves with beaded decoration on them uh, and with uh, sort of coloured tabs to to attach them to to the wrists. So we can imagine, again, rather like the Queen of England today, who appears in public generally wearing gloves, we can imagine Tutankhamen also having worn gloves on state occasions as part of the, the trappings of royalty. And then at the other end of the extreme, we also have his sandals some of which are uh, everyday wear, just made from papyrus. Others are much fancier, sort of equivalent of Gucci sandals almost, with elaborate decoration, uh, coloured beads and so forth. So um, he had quite a a wardrobe of footwear as as well as his his clothing.
0: With each loincloth and Gucci-esque sandal, we're inching ever closer to the boy himself. But hold on, we don't want to get too close – because next week we've got a whole episode coming up on Tutankhamun's mummy. But we can't discuss the treasures of Tutankhamun's tomb without talking about what he was buried in. Because these weren't just coffins, they were also incredible artefacts. And first of all, I should point out that I used the word coffins, because this wasn't just one coffin, but a nest of three, which were then placed within a stone sarcophagus And this stone sarcophagus was then enclosed in four golden shrines.
1: The coffins themselves are quite extraordinary works of art. You imagine rather like Russian nesting dolls, they sit snugly one within the other. Each gets more elaborate as you get towards the the, the centre of the whole uh, ensemble and and the king's body. And the innermost coffin um, is fashioned from, from solid sheet gold. Uh, with elaborate uh, inlaid decoration. And each of the the coffins has uh, a mask fashioned to resemble uh, the the face of the dead king, uh, wearing his uh, royal headdress and with a divine beard. So they are really quite astonishing articles of of ancient craftsmanship.
0: And these masks that were crafted, as you say, to represent the dead king, was there an idea that that they would look like Tutankhamun as a person or were they more symbolic?
1: It's a really interesting question and and most royal portraiture in ancient Egypt is quite idealising so it's not designed to look like a specific individual but it's designed to convey the whole notion of monarchy. Um, Having said that there are subtle differences between different reigns that allow us to identify an individual pharaoh. So Tutankhamun's ...gold mask and, and the other representations of his face, they are idealising in many senses. So they present the kind of ideal image of youth uh, and and health uh, and majesty. But certain of the, the physical characteristics are subtly different from other pharaohs of the time. So there may have been an intention to try and personalise it just a little bit.
0: Tutankhamun's multi-layered coffin wasn't the only one found in the tomb... Inside a plain, simple wooden box in the room known as the Treasury, Howard Carter happened across an unexpected discovery. He found two tiny miniature coffins, both less than 60 centimetres long. And these coffins are believed to contain the remains of Tutankhamun's infant daughters.
1: This is such a, a moving and poignant set of objects from the tomb. So, Tutankhamun was a young boy and his wife, who was also his sister, was a young girl. They tried to start a family, but evidently had two daughters who um, were stillborn. And these little girls um, had their tiny bodies lovingly mummified and buried in in little coffins, which were placed in, in Tutankhamen's tomb. And it's—I I find it, you know, terribly moving to to look at these and think, well, if either had survived, they would have been the next pharaoh. But you know, very sadly, um, in ancient Egypt, of course, many children died in childbirth because you know medicine was was not particularly advanced. And in Tutankhamun's case, these two little girls mark the end of the royal line.
0: By this point in the podcast. I think we've demonstrated why we're still talking about the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb hundred years on. Carter clearly found some spectacular artefacts in there. But in a 5,000-strong hall like this, not every object can be a golden throne or a jewel-encrusted pectoral. In fact, there was plenty of other stuff in there which was much less glamorous. But if you're an Egyptologist, no less exciting.
1: So if we think of the linen garments, the items of underwear, the king would have worn more or less the same kind of underwear as all of his subjects. They may have been made from a slightly finer grade of cloth, but nonetheless they were pretty similar. Things like um, the food uh, included in Tutankhamun's tomb. Um, He was buried with an abundance of supplies for the afterlife, everything from preserved joints of meat to jars of honey, uh, jars of wine, loaves of bread,
0: Just a note on this ancient buffet for the afterlife. There were more than 100 baskets of food found in the tomb, including 42 joints of meat. And these victual mummies were each preserved and stacked into their own individual boxes, sealed with hot resin. And while they may not be all that appetizing today, these discoveries offer a fascinating insight into what ordinary ancient Egyptians were eating
1: the difference between royal and non-royal was one of scale rather than of of substance. So he would have had more of everything, but actually it would have been more or less the same kind of food uh, that his subjects were, were eating on a daily basis. So actually, we've got a pretty good cross-section of the ancient Egyptian diet represented in Tutankhamun's tomb. Bread and beer would have been the staples, and there's plenty of, of bread and grain in, in Tutankhamun's tomb. Also vegetables um, like garlic, which was very popular, chickpeas and lentils and other pulses, and then what would have been a little more high-status food, uh, meat, including joints of beef and preserved goose. Those would have been foodstuffs that Ordinary people wouldn't have eaten so so frequently. And then the honey and the wine, which again were quite high status commodities. Um, So all in all, we can recreate what an Egyptian banquet would have been like, but also what people would have been eating day in, day out.
0: From astonishingly rare desert glass to golden sandals and hearty hunks of beef. I hope that this episode has given you a good idea of some of the vast riches of Tutankhamun's tomb. Toby has examined a hundred of these artefacts in painstaking detail for his latest book. So to finish us up, I couldn't resist asking him, which is his favourite?
1: Well, the object that I took really as the title object for for my new book is Tutankhamen's trumpet. Uh, He was buried with with two trumpets. Um, One of them is made of, of sheet silver, and silver um, was a very precious material in Egypt. It had to be imported. And it's a remarkable musical instrument. And what particularly strikes me about this instrument is that we have the object. It has been played in modern times. Um, there's a BBC recording of, of the trumpet being blown in 1939. So we know what it sounded like. But of course, we don't have any notation of ancient Egyptian music. So we can never tell what tunes it played. And the the ceremonies and the occasions at which it would have been played are also lost uh, to history. So for me, the the trumpet kind of sums up both what we know about ancient Egypt, but also what we don't know. And it leaves it to our imaginations to fill in the gaps. And so for me, it's a, it's a very kind of symbolic piece for our understanding of the ancient world as a whole.
0: Next week, we'll be getting up close and personal with Tutankhamun himself, as Dr. Chris Norton joins me to re-examine the Boy King's mummy. We'll discuss ancient mummification methods, grave robbing, and how to make it into the ancient Egyptian afterlife. Many thanks to my expert for this episode, Professor Toby Wilkinson. You can read plenty more about the objects in Tutankhamun's tomb and what they can tell us about life in ancient Egypt in his book, Tutankhamun's Trumpet, The Story of Ancient Egypt in 100 Objects. Thanks for listening. This podcast series was written and edited by me, Ellie Cawthorne, and it was produced by Brittany Colley. Additional checks on this episode by Rob Attar and Daniel Adamson.